Are there secret groups and cabals controlling everything from behind the scenes? On this episode, we start a year-long exploration of that question as we look at an introduction to Puppet Masters. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Lee Kunle, and with me, as always, is Professor Nathan Radke. Hey, what do you think of democracy? I like it. Yeah. What about the whole, I mean, it's also a pain in the butt, but... Yeah, I mean, it sucks, but it, it sucks Cause, less. Because all the other people... They vote for the wrong things. Exactly. That's, that's the problem that's with irritating. democracy. But okay. But still. You know, I, I don't like think it. I've ever voted for anybody who won in my whole life. But I mean, there's all sorts of ways that we can organize ourselves. Democracy is flawed. Yeah. Very flawed. There are also democracies and democracies. I'm telling you, Canadian democracy is not organized in an optimal way. That's just this is my two cents here. All right. And that's as much as I'm going to spend on that because nobody wants to listen to a podcast about Canadian democracy. But just And in, it's organization. Are you sure we could do a tangent right I'll now? I'll pay you two cents to stop talking about it right now. But we think, you know, we're pro-democracy. Yes. It's flawed. It's the best flawed system we have. Sure. And the idea of democracy is voice of the people. Yep. Demos. The people get to decide their fate in a way. Yep. That you end up with the government that you deserve, that things are out in the open. That decisions are made in a transparent fashion by the government. The government works for you. And so your your society kind of functions in this understandable way. Sure. Yeah. Okay. The opposite of that idea is, of course, something like a royal family. Mm -hmm. You know my feelings on royal families. You don't like them. I don't like them. I'm not a fan. I think they're the pugs of the human world. I could go on and on. I have at least four or five cents to say about royal families. And the appeal of the democracy is that we've moved past that, away from tiny elite groups who, away from the eyes of the public, are making these decisions that end up impacting all of our lives. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's interesting that you put it in a sense that we've moved past it because there is an argument to be made, and I'm sure you're going to pay me more money not to make this argument, that democracy was also the primal form of collective political organization that a lot of indigenous groups and if you think about in ancient times like like prehistoric ancient times like hunter gatherer times sure. that maybe that's how small groups managed most effectively was sort of to take say the adult population and say what should we do under these circumstances yeah in small human groups direct democracy was probably extremely common in what we call prehistoric times yeah so maybe it was old and then you again. And in between, we had royal families. Royal families. To kind of mess things up. And dictators. They're still around. Well, so royal families, for that matter. Lots of royal families. And there have been a lot of revolutions in things like that. Mm. French Revolution, classic. Yeah, Russian Revolution. American, American Revolution. Revolution. Where you shake off your royal family, and sometimes you shake their heads off of their bodies. Yep. Which I don't... You don't have to go that far. Nope. The Americans did fine without having to get rid, actually physically, of the British royal family. But did the Americans get rid of royal families? Ooh. Because let me tell you a story. Aha. Uh -huh. Let's go back to 2004. Okay. Let's talk about democracy. What's like the key moment in any democracy is your election. Yes. 
So we're talking about the 2004 American federal election for president. Okay. You were alive. You remember this. There were high stakes for this election. Okay. We had two very different candidates. On the one hand, we had George W. Bush, the incumbent president. Right. He had beaten Al Gore in 2000. In 2000 in kind of a sketchy election. Yeah. Yeah. So Bush had been in power for the, for four years. The Bush administration had such luminaries in it as Dick Cheney and mm -hmm. Paul Wolfowitz and Donald, Donald Rumsfeld, Rumsfeld exactly. John Ashcroft. And if you don't know these names, we're listing off here like a veritable murderer's row of what I would consider to be war criminals. Yep. Because of the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Mm -hmm. The Bush administration. And Afghanistan. And Afghanistan. They were war crimes, in my opinion. Yep. And so there was that on the table. Are we going to I mean, they were, they were not taken to international court no. because they didn't sign up to it. But I want to just suggest that it's maybe more than just Nathan's opinion. If you look at what constitutes a war crime, those are war crimes. Yeah. I mean, the invasion of Afghanistan is maybe a little bit more complicated, but certainly the invasion of Iraq, that was just, I mean, go listen to any of our episodes on September 11th or Operation Cyclone. Right. So... That was going on. Are the Americans going to reelect this pile of war criminals? Mm -hmm. That's a pretty big, that's a pretty big stakes. There was a number of hot button social issues as always being debated, you know, abortion and same sex marriage and stem cell research and that kind of thing. And the usual issues about defense and spending and healthcare and foreign policy. Of course, Bush had been president during 9-11 back in, in 2001. And that had the effect of spiking his popularity. Yeah, he was not doing well before then. No, he had just gotten in. He was kind of a ridiculous figure, a bit of a buffoon. But after September 11th, then the Americans rallied behind George Bush. He became a wartime president. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But by 2004, the bloom was off the rose. The rose bush. Ah, yeah. well done. Uh, thank you. Because you'd had the federal government's like wildly underwhelming response to Hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. Absolute disaster. And some opposition to the invasion of Iraq, a lot of people were asking at this point, wait, why? Yeah, why and also, it was not a well-done invasion. Rumsfeld had wanted to go in with a really skeleton troop, like very few boots on the ground. The idea being that we have all this tech. Yeah, overwhelming technology. That we would just be able to go in, and by we, I mean the the Bush administration in America. That did not work. And so they were sucked into this protracted war, and that wasn't yeah, supposed to happen. Yeah, the word quagmire started getting thrown around quite a bit. And that was not supposed to be the case. It was supposed to be something that was going to be just done with. And already by 2004, we were starting to see that Iraq, far from being liberated into some kind of paradise, was really suffering under that invasion. Yep. And there was some, some divisions within that country that were basically going to tear it apart and possibly cause a civil war. Yep. So... Just a bunch of terrible bungling and just awful decisions that had been made. Now, the other candidate, the Democratic nominee, was John Forbes Carey, or JFK, as he's more commonly known. I don't even remember him. You know that? He was craggy. Huh. He had a lot of crags in his okay, face. Okay, okay. He, he was sort of like had a, like a craggy chin and just he spoke in a craggy way. All right. He was all crags all day long. So, spoiler alert, he did not win. I guess not. Yeah. No, Kerry was a Vietnam War veteran. Oh, Kerry, no, yeah, of Now course it's all I coming back. Yes, In fact, you yes, should yes. remember Kerry. As yes. more and more stuff, you're going to remember Kerry. No, I remember Kerry. Weirdly, I thought he was a Republican. You know that? Because he was so craggy. 
and kind of upper crusty. And when Kerry came back from Vietnam, he had a purple heart, a bronze star, and a silver star, and became very active in the organized anti-Vietnam War movement. Yeah, that's right. I remember seeing some clips of him from the 60s or 70s where he's on talk show being very critical yeah. about the U.S. involvement in Vietnam back then. Yeah, he was asking questions like, would, would you be willing to be the last man to die for a mistake? Right. Which is a hell of a question. Uh, he was even involved in investigations into American war atrocities. Hmm. He was elected senator in the mid-1980s and led an investigation and a series of hearings into the Iran-Contra scandal mm -hmm. and the relationship between the CIA and crack cocaine in America's inner cities. Wow, we even did an episode on that, like, all coming back way back in yeah. the day. And so, on one hand, it seems like the Americans have this very important election. They're at war. They could be getting into more wars. There were all sorts of different issues on the table. You have two very different candidates. Mm-hmm. So it's nice and clear cut. However, here's the thing. It was a very close race, but whichever candidate won back in 2004, regardless of whether the president was going to be from the Republicans or the Democrats, there was one tiny organization that was guaranteed to be represented. Okay. Skull and Bones. Right. Okay. A.K.A. The Order. A.K.A. The Brotherhood of Death. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, Bush and Kerry would have both been members with their Yale graduates. Is that where? Yep. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because despite Skull and Bones being this tiny, tiny elite group in an elite university, somehow out of a country of over 300 million humans, both Bush and Kerry had been members of this tiny organization. Mm. Or to put it another way, both were Bonesmen. Oh. Bonesmen. Put some effects on that. And despite this being a tiny little group, they weren't even the first Bonesman presidents. Okay. Taft, famous for getting stuck in a bathtub. And George H.W. Bush. Right. Who also had been head of the CIA yep. in 1976, backing military dictatorships in Central America. Those men also Bonesman from this tiny, tiny little group yep. in a nation of millions, hundreds of millions of people. Yeah. That's the darndest thing. That means as of 2024, there have been 45 men who served as American president. Okay. 6.66%. Nice. <laughs> that is suspicious, isn't suspicious it? Suspicious number. 6.66 of American presidents have been bonesmen. Okay. Which seems like a lot for an organization that recruits 15 people a year, let's face it. Yeah. Other than George H.W. Bush, prominent CIA officials have been bonesmen. Uh, Prescott Bush was a bonesman. There's been bankers and brokers. Like, these guys are movers and also shakers. Right. So what is this weird, tiny little organization? Well, they're formed in 1832. They're also known as Order 322. And their clubhouse is a large brownstone townhouse in New Haven called The Tomb, which is not ominous at all. No. They have a lot of weird and creepy rituals. You'll know if you've been asked to join the Bonesman, because you will get the tap. Every year, 15 freshmen at Yale are tapped ritually on the shoulder, and that signals their entry into the group, whereupon they have to then go through a bunch of other bizarre, much stranger rituals, which we'll get into. And who were the sort of people that, that would get tapped? Traditionally, this has changed recently, and we'll get into that, but traditionally, you'd have like the captain of the football team, mm -hmm. other star players in other sports. Uh, athletes, fraternity heads, a whiff and poof, maybe here or there. A what? A whiff and poof. Yeah, okay. What is it? What's a whiff and poof? Yes. They're like like choral singers. 
Oh, uh, okay. It's like an acapella group. Right, okay. Yeah. With and who's. Reportedly, every Yale president from the mid-1800s to 1950 was a bonesman. Okay. So they have a tremendous amount of influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, many other important faculty positions have been held by bonesmen. So in a way, it's sort of self-replicating. Sure. It's, it's kind of self-perpetuating. Mm-hmm. Because of this idea of nepotism, like once the bonesmen get into an organization, that's sort of the nature of these organizations, they get more bonesmen in. Yeah. So they meet on Thursday nights, they sing ancient tunes, they walk through the, the Yale streets wearing dark gray flannel. And this is the second poem we've had on the uncover-up. Okay. The first one was about UFOs by Gray Barker. By Gray Barker. It was not a nice poem. No, it, it was, was titled... Was angry. UFOs are shit. I think it was something like that. Yeah. Okay, this one's titled A Freshman's Prayer on a Thursday Night from 1934. Okay. Hear the clumping of their feet as they go marching down the street. Perhaps someday, if I am good, I may be of that brotherhood. There is something grand about a club, so few can join it, there's the rub. And those outside are filled with awe. What prompts such awe can have no flaw. O Lord, I pray thee, let me be a god in that society. For I know not what they do. I greatly want to do it too. Right. Poetry. I don't actually understand poetry, but... <laughs> Sometimes were... it, it really encapsulates the idea. Yeah. And that, I think that especially that those last few lines there give some sense of what the appeal is to a secret society. Yeah. I don't know what they do, but I want to do it too. Do you, want, do you want to hear some of the stuff they do? Uh, yeah, okay. Okay. Besides so, become president. Besides become president and heads of the CIA. So new recruits reportedly have to lie naked in a coffin. Yeah, I heard about this with respect to Bush. Yeah, because it's, it's true of all of them. Right. With Inside the clubhouse, they lie down naked in a coffin surrounded by older members of the group, and they have to confess their most private secrets. Mm-hmm. The contents of those secrets are then recorded and kept by the patriarchs of the group. Yeah. You know what that reminds me of? What other group demands that you tell them all this incriminating stuff? Scientology. That's the one I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. And then records it and keeps it back. Yeah. So that they can forever incriminate you or threaten to do that. Because knowledge is power. Yeah. I mean, in a bunch of different ways, knowledge is power. I mean, there's the sense of that these people are all at Yale and learning about law and medicine and politics and things like that. That gives them a kind of power. Well. There's I- also the kind of power you have knowing other people's darkest secrets there's that let me just jump in with respect to yale and also all the other elite universities what actually makes those you i mean sure you get a good education but that's probably true of a lot of places that don't make the elites status of a great university or an ivy league university and what really distinguishes those are your social connections so again in the sense of knowledge is power it's like who you know really determines then how your life is going to play out. Who you, you might, know and, and how you know how to behave. Yeah, that's that's another thing. But if you have people in positions of power and you are friends with them, things might end up being easier for you yep. than they would be for other people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are schools in England that have like their own accents, basically. Yeah. And when you hear an accent... Right. Shout out to Eaton. Exactly, exactly. The Eaton yeah. boys. Yeah. So that's going on. There's the the weird stuff with coffins and nudity and things. There's a lot of theatrical weirdness, drinking fake blood. Fake blood? Who, Who knows? Out of a skull. Real skull? Yes. Really? Yeah. We'll get to real skulls. Mock human sacrifices. Okay. Each new member gets a secret name. And names are reused for new members, so the names sort of 
get handed down. Okay. And a lot of these names have a satanic connection. Mm -hmm. There are members named Boaz, which is short for Beelzebub. Okay. A long devil, which is pretty clearly satanic. Yep. Baal. Right. Uh, Gog and Magog. Okay. This is Old Testament stuff this here. Is some, well, that's New Testament. That's Book of Revelation. Really? God, well, it's it's both. What, the first one. Baal is definitely Old Baal Testament. Baal is Old Testament. Yeah. Okay. Gog and Magog are from the book, and amongst other places, but they're from the Book of Revelation, referring to the evil forces that will join Satan in the end times. Right. And the group allegedly, I was saying we were going to talk about skulls, the group allegedly have human skulls of famous historical figures, including Geronimo's. Really? Yeah, which is kind of a Not, problem. Yes. Inside the tomb, all clocks are five minutes ahead mm -hmm. to encourage group members to see themselves as being apart from the normal world, to be on Bones oh. time. Mm -hmm. And they own a retreat in the St. Lawrence River called Deer Island. Really? There's like, they have an island. Mm -hmm. They have an island where they can go mm -hmm. and do their weird things. Mm -hmm. And this weird, tiny little group has an outsized influence, clearly, on the American political system. Right. Like there's, there can just be no denying that. Statistically, yeah. that is a ridiculous amount of presidents, CIA heads, CIA officers. That is an odd thing. Them and the Freemasons. Yeah. Who will do a whole episode on it? Because there was a lot of presidents who came from that set yeah. of secret society. And so when you hear things like this, and all that stuff is true, all that stuff we just said is true. When you hear stuff like that, yeah. all of a sudden you start to ask the question, wait, do we have a democracy here? Mm. Or do we have like an, oligar an oligarchy? Mm -hmm. Do we have a situation where anybody can grow up to be president? Or do we have a situation where, no, this small group of elites who guard their power and have strange rituals that we don't understand, are they really the ones who are in charge of the things that happen? You can understand why a person would go down that direction. Yeah. Well, I think when you put it like that, I would certainly say that is what we have. Except I think that your second way of framing it is in fact correct. We do live with secret societies, and those secret societies have an outsized influence on monopolizing positions of power. A lot of these stories, at least parts of them, are indeed true. Yeah. Aspects of them are true. And it is a it is an interesting question. To what extent we have a democracy when we have so much that happens in secret? Or so many secret organizations that have, that play an outsized role. And I'm not just thinking about things like these nepotistic outfits like Skull and Bones. I'm thinking about secret service organizations or even secret trade organizations or, or secret trade negotiations. I mean, that's what the Freemasons were at first. They were a secret trade organization. Yeah. Of Masons. Yeah. Or, or what about trade secrets? And trade secrets and intellectual property, when a lot of what companies do, you know, that, that might be things that I would like as a democratic citizen to know about or have influence over. I'm not allowed to know because these are trade secrets. They're intellectual property. So there is, you're right, a lot that happens in the shadows, also in democracies. Yeah. I mean, and to what degree is this even a democracy? When you look at how heavily impacted democracies are by the efforts of things like lobbyists. Yeah. In 2022 in the United States, over 4 billion, with a B, 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 b billion yeah. US dollars were spent on lobbying. Yep. And and what's what is lobbying? What is what does a lobbyist do? A lobbyist is sort of a 
public relations campaigner who tries to influence people in positions of power, elected officials usually, to do what they want them to do. Yeah, you'd have lobbyists from tobacco, you'd have lobbyists from McDonnell Douglas, you'd have lobbyists from Big Pharma, and they would come in and with vast amounts of money, have this outsized impact on politicians, on quote unquote elected politicians. Right. Who are supposed to be making unbiased decisions that are in the will of the populace. I want to come back, Nathan, to this point that you raised. Do we have a democracy? Because I could imagine a listener recoiling at such a almost scandalous way of putting it. Because on the on the one hand, of course we have a democracy. You get to vote. And you get to vote for who you want to vote for. But there's an old theorist, Alexis de Tocqueville. He is a theorist of democracy, and he made this really important insight, which is that the health and well-being of a democracy is directly related to how informed the citizenry is about the issues that they're voting on. So you could formally have a democracy, but not have a really healthy democracy in its spirit if the people don't know or don't know enough about what it is that they're actually voting on. And and part of the reason that people might not know enough is because there are these massive PR campaigns by lobbyists to convince the public that what the lobbyists want is really what the people want. Yeah. Or you don't know what your secret organization is doing, say, in Operation Cyclone, where billions with a B dollars were were funneled in secret through black budgets to support military campaigns that at the time that they were happening, the U.S. civilians didn't know anything about. Yeah. Or other secret projects. And we've listed a lot of them. I'm going to refrain from saying the same old ones. Right. You know what they are. You know what they are, dear listeners. And the other thing that's happening is that wealth is increasingly becoming consolidated into smaller and smaller percentages of the population. Yep. In 2020, the wealthiest 1% of the world's population controlled 46% of the world's wealth. Yeah. The poorest 55% had 1% of the world's wealth. Right. I'm going to say that again. The richest 1% owned about half of everything. The poorest half of the world, they owned about 1% of everything. Right. Like, what? how crooked are things? This is, again, it seems as though things are being manipulated sure. by these elites to maintain this crooked game. And they are being game. manipulated. Yeah. Of course they are. Let me give you an example of exactly what we're talking about. This happened to me. It was quite a while ago. I hate to say that it was over 20 years ago. You're old. I know. And I finished undergrad university and I'm, I'm going to move from Canada. I'm going to go, I'm going to live in Berlin, Germany with my girlfriend. Now my girlfriend is half German, but the kind of Germans that her family comes from, it's not the kind that my half of uh, the Germans come from. Hers are like super upper class. They're actually nobles. They've got Vaughn in their names. Exactly. Which is an indication of nobility. Now it's kind of weird because formally there is no nobility in Germany. And yet, of course, there is. There is an upper crust of people who have these names, who trace their lineages back to dukes and kaisers and other, you know, important barons. people. Barons. Apparently, just to give you a sense, you can trace my wife through the female line, so mother, grandmother, etc., 
four or five generations away from Otto von Bismarck. Oh, who man. And that's like- is like the guy of German unification and, you know, big historical figure. Her and I, we go and we move to Berlin and we are put up by one of her family. Now, of course, I'm talking about people that I know, so I'm going to be a bit vague about this because I don't want to embarrass anybody. It was particularly interesting because it gave me an insight into a kind of world that I'd never seen before. My parents were middle class. My mom comes certainly from working class family. You know, when we want to get a job, we got to write a CV and, and walk in the front door and, you know, like schmucks, put it on the pile of other CVs that are there and hope to goodness we'll get a call back. And I say that because one day while we were staying at my girlfriend's family's We'll house, call them the Von R- Well, we can't because that's actually what they're called. What? No, they're not Von R- They very much are. No. Yeah. What? Yeah. Oh, boy. No, no. This is like... It's too bad that can't stay in the podcast. So I can't say who they are, right? But we're there at dinner at my girlfriend's family. And for dinner this evening, it was a special evening, we were told, because they were inviting other people for dinner. Okay, so fine, whatever. You know, I'm some schmuck from Canada. Like, what do I know? So whatever, fine. So we sit down for dinner. And again, I can't, I got to spare some of the details here, but... Now at the table for dinner, it's me and my girlfriend, okay? Then there is the chief editor of one of the largest newspapers, the head heart surgeon in one of the largest hospitals, and one of the board members of one of the largest banks. All right, this is just who's hanging out for dinner. And talk, 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 talk. Of course, their kids are the same age that I and my girlfriend are as when we were there. So they're, you know, looking for jobs and things turn to whose kid is looking for what job. Well, one of the kids turns out has got some interest in becoming a journalist and the head editor of one of the largest newspapers pipes up and says, well, why don't you send them over to my office and I'll, you know, see what we can do. Set them up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Talk, talk, talk. Turns out that another one is interested in medicine. And why don't you send them over to my office? And, you know, we'll see. We'll have a chat, see what we can do. And then, of course, the last one was interested in banking. And you could see I was, I mean, I felt almost like an anthropologist in this completely different culture watching it because I was just, I was gobsmacked. I was just sitting there with my mouth sort of just hanging down as I watched this wealth and privilege reproduce itself right in front of my eyes. Yeah. Watch How the many, elite hold on to what they have. But it wasn't what was interesting. It was, wasn't sinister. They were friends. They were legitimately friends with each other. And they all had positions of wealth and power. Wouldn't you say there is something a bit sinister about that, though? Well, in there's not, something a bit crooked about it. There's a sense in which, let's say, a family member of yours is interested in studying at York University. Why don't you get, you know, send me, send them over to me. I'll let them know. Maybe I'd introduce them to a professor of mine. Maybe I'd, you know, of course I'm going to help you because you're my friend. And so I want to do you a good turn. And that was very much how it seemed here as well. It wasn't like, 
oh, we're going to underhandedly screw all those suckers who are applying for a very limited number of internships. Sure, some of those might have gotten in, but there was also the sense of if you knew the right people, if you had a familial connection, your path was so much easier because you got to talk to not the person who made the decision, but that person's boss's boss's boss. You yeah, know, and you're bypassing like, it. It's almost like this idea of this feeling of there's a secret handshake out there. And if yeah. you just knew the secret handshake, then you yeah. could get in. These people don't even need a secret handshake. They all know each other. They know each other. Yeah. It's a closed club. You can't get in. You can't just, you can't fake the title of nobility. You're, you're not allowed to take on that title, even though it's meaningless, like structurally meaningless, like, like they got rid of the title. But you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to do that. And they all know each other. They all party with each other from like day one. Yeah. You know, they have these large meetups at castles where the rest of us are not invited. Right. I know you know what that's like because you get invited to some of those meetups these days. You're invited to that castle. I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking about the other meetups that you do. Yes. Right. right? So this nepotism around skull and bones, I get it in a sense where, of course, George W. Bush goes to Yale. That's where his dad went. And of course, if his dad went there and was a member of the Skull and Bone Society, George H.W. Bush is also going to be part of that. And that's already going to like make things so much easier for him. Did he really have the grades to get into Yale? No. Does it, you know, is he like the rest of us schmucks having to like actually do it based on his SAT grade no. test scores? Absolutely right? not. Exactly. And then so, he kind of nepotisms his way all the way into the Oval Office. And then yeah. the next thing you know, Iraq gets invaded. Yeah. Thanks to this, the, like the world's largest Nepo baby. Yeah. Is he though? Because you've got Trump. I mean. Also a Nepo baby. All of these, so much of this power is just reproduced in this way. Yeah. And so you start, you can, you can understand why somebody would start to look out in the world and everything that happens as an effect of the manipulations and the machinations of these secret societies. Mm-hmm. However, I would argue, having told that story of Skull and Bones, I have another story for you. Okay. That points out, I think, the danger of that thought process. Right, okay. Because we're going to stay in Germany. Okay. Now, this is kind of awkward because I'm telling the story, but you're the one who actually speaks German. So whenever I get a name or a word wrong, I want you to just repeat it properly. So I want to talk about the death of Walter Rattenau. Yeah, that's good. That's fine. Oh, close enough. Close nice. enough because you do Starting have to well. anglicize some of these names. It would have been Walter, Walter. in German, but okay. who, Walter, right? Yeah. And Ratnau, the Germans like to roll their R's in the Ratnau. Back. There you go. Walter Ratnau. Very nice. All right. And his untimely death. Okay. All right. So Walter Ratnau is born in Berlin. <laughs> You're overdoing it. You can't over uh, you can't overdo a German accent. <laughs> born in Berlin in 1867, the son of a wealthy industrialist. Uh-huh. He becomes the head of a large electrical engineering company after his father's death in 1915 through exactly the kind of thing that we've just been talking about. Now, he's also influential in organizing the German economy during World War I, so he is really like a heavy hitter. Yeah, yeah, the, he's, he's well known. Yeah. Yeah, like you've heard of Rotten. Oh, of course. Yeah. He headed the War Raw Materials Department. Now, after the war, Rattenau becomes more active in politics. I wish I hadn't intervened. And yet it's too late. It's... You can't, it's happening. The toothpaste, you can't get the toothpaste back in the tube. 
So he's appointed a minister of reconstruction in 1921. That's a huge, yep. that's a huge job. Appointed foreign minister in 1922. Mm -hmm. He negotiates a treaty with the Soviet Union in 1922. Okay. Which is kind of unpopular with the German right wing. Sure. And like, and because of course the Soviets at this point have had their, their, their communist revolution. Yeah. And there's a lot of communism happening in Germany. And it's yeah. kind of scary. Like, again, from the vantage point of history, you know that at least in the 20s, Germany does not become a communist country. But you have Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht. These are like giants who are really animating a lot of people and they're yeah. getting interested. And there's a lot of poverty and workers and ex-soldiers. I mean, because of what was happening in Germany, Germany politically and economically, that was a population that was probably more prone to some extreme ideas. Sure, as will as 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 yes. will uh, as history as history will shows. terribly show. The other thing about Ratnow is that he insists that Germany obey the Treaty of Versailles. Right. Although he argued that they should redraw the terms of the contract, he's like, we should, you know, we have some wiggle room here. But ultimately, he was saying, no, no, but we still have to follow the terms of this, which was also unpopular with the German right wing. The other thing that Ratnow did was he condemned the Herero and Namaqua genocide. Okay. That was occurring between 1904 and 1908. Okay. And this is a genocide that I don't think a whole lot of people know about. It no. was one of the one of the first genocides of the 20th century. There were many. Right. It was one of the first ones. It was carried out by the German government in what what is now called Namibia. Aha. Uh -huh. But a hundred thousand people killed in concentration camps. No, really? Yes. That's unbelievable. Starvation, disease. Okay. Yeah. Well, as part of this German imperial project. Right. And so, so Rattenau was one of the people who was condemning this. He's like, you know what? This was a genocide. Well, they didn't have the word for it then, but he's like, this is an atrocity. This mm. is a terrible thing. And all of these things were irritating the growing German fascist movement of the time. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, Rattenau was part of the Weimar Republic. Right. A brief description of which will now occur. Well, this is the interwar government before Hitler. It is a liberal democratic government. And, well, what else can I say about it? Yeah, that's about it. They were just that's, sort of like, it they, was like a normal time. It was as normal as Germany was going to be until after the Second World War. Yeah, there was like this brief moment in between the, the wars where Germany had sort of normalcy. Yeah. But, but kind of a deceptive normalcy. Because that normalcy, which people thought at the time was set in stone. Was quickly undermined by Hitler. Which is a valuable lesson because we always think that our normalcies are set in stone. Right. And they never are. Right. This, what happened in Germany, can happen pretty much anywhere. Mm. So the growing German fascist movement, they've got some issues with Rathenau. And they start to see him as belonging to a secret cabal of Jewish people who are working to undermine and destroy Germany. Mm. And this was called the Committee of the 300. I see. This idea that, no, there are 300 people who are secretly manipulating everything. They are the puppet masters. Right. They have destroyed the economy on purpose. They are working against our own country. Right. This committee of the 300. Mm. So where did this idea come from? Have you ever heard of this, the committee of the 300 before? No, although... I mean, it, the idea obviously is super familiar. Well, indeed. And I'm starting, I'm wondering, is this not also around the time that the Elders of Zion text is starting to emerge in Germany it as is. it is in the United States? Yep. And of course, we know that this is something that Hitler and the far right really gloms onto then almost as now. Is it from there? 
Interestingly, the idea of the Committee of the 300 was taken from an article written way back in 1909 in the Neue Freie Presse. Yeah, not bad. Neue Freie Presse. That sounded better. And that article was written by one Walter Rathenau. No, he he creates the beginning of his the the conspiracy that eventually gets him. Yes. No. Yes. That is irony. So in the article, Rathenau argued that I am now worried about everything I have said on the uncover up. As you should be. No, as you should be, because in the article, Rathenau argued that three hundred men, all of whom know one another guide the economic destinies of the continent and seek their successors from their own milieu. Right. Which is exactly what you described. Right. And is not particularly, like, shocking or anything like that. What he was saying, what he was pointing out was that power and influence was being consolidated into the hands of a small amount of wealthy industrialists Mm -hmm. rather than being spread out democratically. Mm -hmm. That basically that capitalism ran the risk of transforming a country from a democracy into an oligarchy. Right. And that's what he was trying to say. However, right-wing Germans, fascists, like the journalist uh, Theodor Frisch. Sure. Yeah. And World War I general Eric Ludendorff. Mm-hmm. They combined the idea from Ratnow, the, the Committee of the 300, with the Protocols of the Elders of Zion hoax. Right. And couple that with the fact that Ratnow was a wealthy and influential Jewish industrialist, and they decided that the Committee of 300 was actually a Jewish plot to destroy Germany and that Ratnow was the head of the beast. Mm. And then I guess he accidentally slipped up by writing a newspaper article about it? Right, yeah. It's like, ah, that was your one mistake, accidentally writing and publishing a newspaper article about it. Well, and then once you have this theory, and it reminds me of this idea that we have talked about often on the show, this apophenia, this scent, this ability to discover patterns in both meaningful but also meaningless noise. Once you have this theory... It almost acts like a primer. And now you're like, oh, that's why he wants us to obey the Versailles Treaty. Exactly. And and that's why... That's why he condemns the massacre of these people. Right? Yeah. And and so now suddenly you are able to interpret what he's doing through the lenses of this organizing idea that suggests, as a sense, almost proof of, of, of the very idea that you're trying to establish. Yeah. It's both the appeal of and the danger of... The conspiracy theory, which claims to explain everything. Right. On the one hand, it's very appealing because it's it's a theory that explains everything. Mm. On the other hand, it's very dangerous. Yeah. Because it's a theory that claims to explain everything. Yeah. In okay. a messed up world. Yeah. They the committee of three hundred was this plot to destroy Germany, and Ratnow was was behind it. Well, allegedly. I allegedly. mean, it wasn't actually. No. It no. Was. No. I mean, well, that's the thing that we should point out. Yeah. This was not true. This was not true. <laughs> While, while it's, it's complicated, right? While still saying that there is the perpetuation of privilege and power, yep. it's not true that there is a secret cabal of- Of evil Exactly. People. Of, especially then of one religion or one sort of political one of world outlook yep. with their secret rituals who are- Pulling the strings behind the scene. Yeah. And it's da- it's it's true. It's a very dangerous slippage from one to the next. And it's this dangerous. I'll tell you how dangerous it is. Mm. June 24th, 1922. Mm. Ratna was being driven to his office in Wilhelmstrasse. Wilhelmstrasse. And another car passes Ratnau's car. That other car has three men in it. Ernst Techau. Mm-hmm. Irvin Kern. Sure. Helman Fischer. 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 And, tragically, Cairn sprayed Ratnow's car with a submachine gun. 
Oh, dear. And Fisher threw a grenade into it. Okay. They were all members of an ultra-right-wing group, Organization Consul. The group wanted the incident to start a civil war in Germany, which, when the dust settled, would have destroyed the Weimar Republic and left the ultra-right in charge of the country with a military dictatorship. Oh, dear. That was the plan. And this is a theme we're going to see coming up over and over again, this idea of we're just going to start, we're going to light the spark. We'll do a factory reboot of society. Some catastrophic event is going to come and we're going to emerge from the ashes. Millenarian thinking. I mean, this is very much like Charles Manson. Yeah. You know, this is... Yeah, he he wanted to start a civil war. Yeah. And he does it by trying to... First, he murders... A bunch of innocent people. Exactly. And then tries to frame other people for it in order to start what he called a race war from which his group would then emerge. Like it's, yeah, this is, this is going to be a theme. Yeah. A bad theme. Yeah. Well, so this didn't happen. Public opinion was against the murder. Well, the murder happened. The murder happened. But then the rest of it didn't happen. The civil war didn't happen because public opinion was against the murder. There was a lot of outcry and criticism against the right wing who were clearly responsible for this. And a memorial was placed on the spot of the assassination, memorializing Ratnow. Where is the memorial? It's not there now. Oh. So during a police standoff, Karen was shot. Fisher took his, takes his own life. And so there's only one guy left from that car. And during the trial, Tekau, the driver, claims that Ratnow was part of the secret committee of 300 Cabal. And mm-hmm. that's why he had to be killed. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a pretty sad story. Mm-hmm. I bet she can get worse. Okay. Once the I, I Nazis, too, yeah. once the Nazis take power in 1933, that memorial to Ratnow that was yeah. put up, the Nazis tear it down, and it's never replaced. They put it, no, they put up a new memorial immediately. Well, sure, the Nazis do to I, the killers. Oh no, of Ratnow. Okay, who now become these these crusaders for freedom, right? Who chopped the head off of the committee of 300. That's bad, but it continues because as we've always seen, ideas once out there take on a life of their own and they yeah. continue circulating. So the idea of the Committee of the 300 stayed in the conspiracy long after the Nazis were gone, in large part thanks to the tireless work of somebody who goes by the name of Dr. John Coleman, who claims to be a former MI6 officer. Okay. I don't think he is a former MI6 officer. Okay. For a lot of reasons. One is that he spells Stasi, S-T-A-S-S-Y. Yeah, that's wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's that's wrong. And like, if you're an MI6 officer, you know what organization you're going to have a really good handle on? The Stasi. Yeah, and you're not going to spell it. That's almost Stasi. as bad as like spelling KGB wrong. Yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> so I I suspect he might not be telling the entire truth about his time in the service. Even if, and it's a stretch given just that piece of evidence you've suggested. It's not but the we've, only one. But we've seen it before. That you can have somebody from the inside who nonetheless says a whole bunch of nonsense. Yeah. So just because somebody has some kind of credential, it's not good enough. You need other corroborating evidence. Yeah. Besides just one person saying one thing and they don't have anything else to back it up besides the fact that, you know, they apparently saw it or they were there or they have some inside track. Yeah, fallacious appeals to authority. Yeah, So exactly. even if he was MI6, we wouldn't necessarily trust him. No. He, I don't think he was MI6. Right. So he has been writing extensively on the Committee of the 300 for decades. And he does speaking tours where he describes the plans of the Committee of the 300, a.k.a., he says, the Olympians. Okay. Who are, according to him, a satanic cabal. Mm-hmm. You knew Satan was going to show up at some point. Sure. That has infiltrated the governments of the United States and England. 
And he argues that they're actually the head of a much larger dragon, which also includes the Club of Rome. Right. The Bavarian Illuminati. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The Freemasons. Well, and this is an interesting dimension of the secret society conspiracy is, is it one society that goes by various different names? Or is it many societies that have the same name? It's it's unclear. And who's really the ruler? See, it's, this guy says the Committee of the 300, the Olympians right. is the real They're one. They're the so, ones on top. So those groups, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderbergers, yeah, the yeah. KGB, sure. the CIA, sure. Mossad, Interpol, yeah. all working for the 300, right. for the Olympians. And they all share the same mission to undermine the United States, God's chosen country, according to Coleman. Uh-huh. And replace it with a demonic regime that will bring on the new world order and plunge the world into an unending dark age. Mm -hmm. Humans will be transformed into mind control robots. Cultish beliefs will spread. And what he means by cultish beliefs is anything other than Protestantism. Okay. So like all, all sorts of very mainstream religions right. are to him cults. And how are they going to do this? And this is another reason why I don't think he's MI6. Because I'm going to explain to you his Wait, argument. Hold on a second. Mm -hmm. He's MI6, but the United States is God's chosen country? It's I know. It's a mess. It's going to get even weirder. So here's an example of how the Committee of 300 is going to introduce Satanism to America. NASA. Okay. Not in the way you're thinking. Okay. In fact, I could ask you to imagine this all day, and you're never going to come up with what he comes up with. Okay. I'm listening. The NASA space program was a fraud, according to Coleman. Yes. The purpose of which was to make rocket science appear cool and interesting to the population. Okay. There would then be an entire generation of Americans who would go on to become rocket scientists. Uh -huh. And then in the year 2000, in the far off year 2000, he's writing this in 1991, the entire space program would be canceled and all of the rocket scientists would be out of work. Uh huh. Then, Unemployed and aimless, they would be encouraged to listen to rock music by, quote, rock music gangsters such as the filthy degenerate Mick Jagger's Rolling Stones <laughs> or the Beatles. The Cabal, the 300, would then also use the opiates of mass spectator sport and unbridled sexual lusts. These would lead the population of unemployed rocket scientists spiraling into drug addiction, which would then allow the New World Order to control their minds and start destroying the nuclear family unit. By the year 2000, 3 billion, with a B again, blah, 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 3 billion people would have been killed by this cabal under the guise of protecting the environment because the environmental movement, also a satanic conspiracy, mic drop. Wow. I mean, this is like a Rube Goldberg variation on conspiracies. You know, those those overly complex machines to produce a very simple task. To sharpen a pencil or something. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And then the trick with the Rube Goldberg machine is you make it as, as, as fantastically impractical with this thing hitting that thing and da-da-da-da-da. This sounds like that in terms of social theory. Like, this is so impractical yes. with so many things that are going to go wrong. Including the fact that, say, I don't know, the Rolling Stones are not particularly compelling by the year 2000. Yeah, it's true. That's just one problem. That's just I one have. of the many problems. This Another one of the, one of the problems is that theory. that prediction, because we're, spoiler alert, it's 2024. Mm. And this did not occur. Did not occur. I mean, Coleman is writing this in the immediate aftermath of the first Gulf War. Right. And it clearly influences his worldview, understandably, because there's a lot of aspects of that war that were shady AF. Yep, sure. Uh, the massacre of fleeing Iraqi troops on the road to Basra, mm -hmm. 
that was argu- arguably Ooh, a war crime. I don't crime. know. Like, how about the invasion to begin with? Yeah, and and we're talking about the first Gulf War invasion. <clears throat> yeah, that was because of the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. I want to do an entire episode oh on God. that because it was hella shady. Yeah. Not that Saddam Hussein was a great guy, but that in itself is hella shady. Everything's hella shady. Oh my god, it's such a mess. And there are a lot of aspects of that war that deserve attention. Mm. And Coleman references things like Lockheed Martin, McDonnell Douglas, SRI. And we also reference these things and point out the fact that there are serious issues that need to be examined for these organizations. But I would argue that when you're describing and explaining the machinations of the military-industrial complex... Satan is an unnecessary causal claim. Sure, yeah. Like, you can understand all of these things without having to introduce some kind of satanic cabal. You Mm. can just look at it from human greed. Yep. And human avarice and these sort of human things. Terrible outcomes are produced by relatively reasonable, relatively mal-meaning people going about in rule-conforming behavior. Yeah. And something horrendous pops out at the other end. So in addition, Coleman spirals into xenophobia and racism midway through the work, arguing at one point that the fact that if you go to New York, you will see people that don't look like you as part of evidence that there is this terrible conspiracy. Again, at this point, anything could count for the conspiracy. Yeah. So right? he walks around New York, he sees people that don't look like him, and he's like, look, there it is. There's right. more of it. Yeah. He argues that the biblical concept of love thy neighbor only applies to your neighbor who is exactly the same as you. <laughs> Sorry, that's so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Coleman also constantly gets distracted by pop culture, which again feeds into what you were saying about patternicity. Mm. Everything that you're around now becomes part of this all-consuming idea you have. He argues that the racy scenes in soap operas, mm-hmm. that's a satanic conspiracy, the nudity in the musical hair, and the success of the Is song. Is there nudity in the musical? Famously, yes. Wow. I don't really go to theater, but apparently, yes. And the success of the song, Dawning of the Age of Aquarius. Right. Which goes a little something like this. You're looking at me, but I'm not singing it. Oh, fine. It's all part of the same plan to undermine the morality of America. It's all in on it. Everything, everything is a part of it. Yeah, yeah. The Beatles were a weapon devised by the SRI. Quote, The phenomenon of the Beatles was not a spontaneous rebellion by youth against the old social system. Instead, it was a carefully crafted plot to introduce by a conspiratorial body, which could not be identified, a highly destructive and divisive element into a large population group targeted for change against its will. New words and new phrases were introduced to America along with the Beatles. Words such as rock in relation to music sounds, teenager, cool, discovered, and pop music were a lexicon of disguised code words signifying the acceptance of drugs and arrived with and accompanied the Beatles wherever they went to be discovered by teenagers. Right. And everybody is in on this. Ed Sullivan, of course, was like a, a, a TV host who introduced the Beatles to America. If you don't know what he looks like, he has an uncanny resemblance to Richard Nixon. He does look a lot like Richard Nixon. Like it's but weird how close he and Richard, they're totally different characters. Yeah, different person. Super different people. But yeah, so. Yeah, it does look a little Nixon y. So Ed Sullivan was in on it. Sure. And every Beatles song was secretly written, words and music, by Theodore Adorno. Ha! <laughs> you know, Adorno has made a comeback as in the alt right, and their theories about, again, how 
wokeism is taking over the world and 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 creating the secret plot. And Ad- I've heard Adorno, Adorno mentioned. Adorno is like a key figure in it. You're going to have to quickly explain who Adorno. Adorno was a Marxist theorist, a Western West German Marxist theorist, and he is one of the members and founding members of an organization called the Frankfurt School, which did what they called critical social theory. They applied Marxism to sociological questions like the movies, popular music, jazz, art, things like that. Now, the thing is... Did he also write every Beatles song? He is the most impenetrable, obtuse, difficult author to read. And you've read Kant. Uh, Yes, I've read Kant and Hegel and Adorno. I've heard Adorno's work described as, if Adorno wanted to touch his ear... He put his arm over his head and touched the earlobe of his other ear. Like he does everything in the most complex way. There's no way. Also, he's like a super fuddy-duddy. Like he didn't even like jazz, let alone rock and roll music. Like he thought that jazz was not sophisticated and interesting. He is, oh, this is way too much information for two seconds on Adorno, but he was also a musicologist slash musician, if you oh, can call it he? that. If you can call okay. it that, because he was into atonal music and the oh 12, 12 tone scale, yep. which is horrendous. And I, I will take a position and say that's not music. Huh? But, but also you don't like modern art. I like some of it. I like some of it. Some of it is derivative and made merely to, merely as a commodity for people who don't understand art. And then others is good art. But rather than getting into that, so, so there, my mic drop. I, I tell the second story <clears throat> as a to point out the dangers, and I think that's sort yeah. of that what happened. Not only do we see scapegoated groups who were targeted by some of these false conspiracy theories, we saw like radical overinterpretation of things, resulting in people seeing patterns that weren't really there. Yeah. And then next thing you know, there's a satanic conspiracy and some obscure philosopher has written all the Beatles songs and there's rocket scientists who are unemployed and, and it just spirals off into just absurdity. Yeah. So this is the tricky bit. We got to walk that line. I mean, even looking back at Skull and Bones, who we opened with, mm. I, I said they they owned an island in the St. Lawrence, which is true. Mm. Apparently, it's gotten pretty run down and shabby. Yeah, sure. Uh, the inside of the tomb, the clubhouse that they have. It's sort of cheesy and silly. Yeah. Here's a quote from Marina Moscovici, an art restorer who was called in to do some of the the paintings they had in there. Sort of like the Adams Family, it's campy in an old British men's smoking club way. It's not glamorous by any means. There's socks under the couch. There's deflated soccer balls lying around. There was an Apache historian who demanded the release of that skull. Yeah, sure. Of Geronimo's skull, understandably. Yeah. But said, no, this probably isn't Geronimo's skull based on what we know historically. Okay. I mean, it's somebody's skull, though. It yeah. is a skull. Yeah. The group, well, back in the day, it was super male, super white, super Protestant. It was very waspy. In 1991, the new initiates to the club voted to start letting women in, and some of the alumni, like William F. Buckley, were so furious they changed the locks on the club rather than letting any women in. William F. Buckley is such a tool. I'm sorry. But the group has gotten more diverse over the last few decades. There's about a dozen other secret societies at Yale. Some of them collect far more in donations and skull and bones. Right. So this is what we have to walk through this year. Yeah. We have to say, yeah, there are elites who are manipulating things. Mm. 
But we also have to closely examine this concept of control. Yeah. And if control is even possible in a world this complicated. And we have to look both at the secret societies that do exist and the way that the myth of secret societies has been used by people in power to manipulate populations into committing atrocities, yeah. as we saw with Ratnow. Yeah. 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 So Can what a year it's going to be. Yeah.